Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. Okay, so we are looking at the epistle to the Hebrews, and this is our second lesson. And in the first lesson, we talked about to whom the book is written, by whom the book is written, and when it was written. And uh, we're going to begin today to look at the first section of the outline that I had given you last week. And I don't know, I feel so old-fashioned here. This is the way it was back in the, you know, like in the... 80s when I first preached you had a cord on your microphone (laughs) it's so exciting Um, you had to hold the microphone in your hand Um, anyway just love when you have technical difficulties hallelujah let's pray father I just thank you for your word and I just pray holy spirit that you would just speak to us this evening I pray that you would stir up our hearts and give us an ear to hear what the spirit is speaking to the church. Lord, I just thank you that you are Lord over all, that you are above all things. And I thank you for giving wisdom, even in little things like how to fix that tonight so that things would work and giving us the ability to minister your word, Lord, not only here in Yarrington, but literally around the world. We just thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week when we left off, we were looking at the introduction. And by the way, if you didn't get notes for the night, they're up here. And what we're going to begin to look at tonight, and I can already tell by the time we won't finish all the notes that you have there tonight. But what we're going to begin to look at tonight, you might also say is introductory because um, it's an introduction to the entire book. We're going to be looking at the first four verses of chapter one. But in those first four verses, all the themes of the book really are included. It's, it's really an amazing passage of scripture that I would compare to the beginning to the gospel of John and to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. Because in those four verses, we have the Father, we have the Son, we have the Holy Spirit. We have a, a very uh, exalted verse, exalted way of of bringing the word of God to us. Uh, There are words that are used there, at least in the Greek, that are not used anywhere else in the Bible or very, very rarely. And uh, it's as if someone, and that someone is the Holy Spirit and whoever wrote the book, very carefully uh, took the time to pick out the exact words they wanted so that in a very short uh, verse, in, uh, to, in a very short little paragraph that's really just one sentence. Uh, you can punctuate it differently, but it's really one long sentence. But in that little paragraph to be able to bring forth so much truth in, in, in such glory and in such mad, majesty. But before we look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, and, and I told you last week that we're not... We're, I'm going to try not to get into too deep into too many little details in the book and look at too many Greek words and things like that because I don't want us to miss the theme of the book. But, but that doesn't apply to these first four verses. We have to look at them really deep, and so we're going to do a deep dive 
into them because they're very, very important to understanding the rest of the book. So before we do that, I want to finish from last week's notes what we were looking at uh, in the introduction that I did not get to. And if you have those notes or if you have them at home, uh, you don't have to write this down. You don't have to write it down anyway. But if you want to, you can write down these verses I'm going to give to you. In the book of Hebrews, it's really important to pay attention to the word therefore. In most English translations, you're going to see the word therefore over and over again in the book. Because the book of Hebrews is a series of arguments uh, or a series of uh, debates, if you will, uh, that are coming from one person, from one writer, but they're really arguments. They're proofs being brought forth to prove to those people that Jesus Christ is better than anything that exists. If you remember, uh, last week we talked about the persecution that they were going through, that the persecution had a few years before that been very active. They had been kicked out of Rome. Many of them had had their property confiscated. They'd lost their jobs, obviously. They had lost everything except for their lives, and they had not been imprisoned, and they had not suffered to the point of shedding blood, but they lost all those things that were very important to them. But then after that, over the period of time, they were allowed to return back to Rome. They were allowed, again, to live in their houses, to have their things back. But there was a, a rule, basically, that you've got to keep the peace. You can believe in your Jesus Christ if you want to. You know, at the time in Rome, there was no recognition of Christianity as a religion. Okay, It was really seen as just a sect of Judaism. Judaism was recognized as a religion by the state. And if you were Jewish, you had many rights and many privileges. If you were in good with the synagogue, in good with the temple, then, for example, your children did not have to serve. They could not be conscripted into, to serve into the Roman army. You had tax breaks. You had different things. Uh, that, that it was good, it was economically good and, and socially good to be a Jew in Rome at that time but in about within 10 years after this is written it's going to be the worst thing in the world to be a jew okay when the persecution really begins but christianity was not recognized at all in fact it would be another 250 odd years before christianity is recognized when constantine was the emperor of rome so we have to we have to remember that and the pressure that they were under to revert back to judaism to tone down the Jesus is the Messiah uh, part, and, um, and really, ultimately, that would be a denial of Christ. So these arguments are offered. The first one of them, of them we're going to begin looking at tonight. It's the first four verses of chapter 1, and I've entitled that section, Christ's Superior Revelation, or the revelation of Jesus Christ, the word of Jesus Christ, is better than any revelation, it's better than any word. But as, you, as we, you progress through these arguments in the book, you keep meeting with this word, therefore, okay? And I think in most English transla translations, it's translated in every place as therefore, but in Greek, there's actually four different Greek words that are translated as therefore, and they were written down in your notes last week. Uh, it's not that it's not highly important that you remember them. It's not important at all. Uh, but I just want to point out what what is perhaps important 
and ultimately is important, that they have different, different, differing degrees of, of strength or of meaning, okay? So the first one of them, uh, it, it, it's written down in your notes, is othen, and it basically means from what or from whom, and it's used in chapter 3, verse 1. It's translated as therefore. And then we have the Greek word dio, which means basically for this reason or wherefore, and it will be translated in English as therefore or wherefore, and that's chapter 6, verse 1, chapter 12, verses 12 and 28. And then there's this Greek word un, and un just means therefore. It means consequently, and we'll see it in chapter 4, verse 1, verse 11, verse 14, verse 16, chapter 10, verse 19, and chapter 10, verse 35. But what I really want to draw your attention to, and as we're going, we're going to recover all this. When we get to these places, we're going to stop. We're going to talk about it. But I want to draw your attention to the fourth word that's also translated as therefore, because we see it in chapter 12, verse 1. And it's the Greek word, tigarun. And tigarun is the same as un that we just said, consequently. But it's a strengthened form of it that literally means, let me tell you, Surely or verily, since, therefore, it's like three words all compacted together. And I can't even think of an English equivalent, but we have all kinds of little sayings when we really want to emphasize that what we're saying is really the truth and you better believe it. And so that's the strongest one of all of these. And it comes in chapter 12, verse 1. And when we get there, you're going to see that chapter 12, verse 1, and you can look at it now, you can look at it this evening, that those verses that are so important at the beginning of chapter 12, that they are the main thrust or the message of the entire book. That's when the writer of Hebrews, that's when the Holy Spirit is bringing it all home and putting it into practical application uh, for our lives. Okay, so let's go over to Hebrews chapter 1, and let's just kind of shift gears, and we're going to start with verse 1, and we'll see how far we get this evening. We're going to look at this these first four verses and talk about the revelation of Jesus Christ and the superiority of that revelation, that that revelation is better. As I mentioned to you, uh, in fact, let's just read the four verses all together as one right now. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. So here we have God the Father. Very specifically, this is speaking of God the Father. And then we read, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. So here we have God the Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And we have words here that indicate, especially when you put them together with other verses in Hebrews, the Holy Spirit, the radiance and the power of God. So we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just as we do in John chapter 1 and just as we do in Genesis chapter 1. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better, much better, that's the theme of Hebrews, than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. 
Amen. So we're going to go to verse 1, and what we're going to do as we go through these four verses, and we won't be doing this to every verse in Hebrews, I promise you, but we're going to take them just a little bit at a time. And the first thing I want to do is offer them to you in the word order that they are in the original Greek, okay? Because when you translate from one language to another language, you often have to change the word order, and it doesn't change the meaning but sometimes it does change the uh, impact of that sentence. So I want to take them in the order that they are in the Greek. And the first thing that we have, the entire book begins with one word. And that word is polymeros, polymeros. And it's translated as in many portions. So if you look in verse 1, depending on your version of the Bible in English, in mine it says in many portions portions that's actually the beginning but it's not three words it's one word it's one word that is an adverb and this adverb comes from the adjective if you remember from english grammar adverbs are related to adjectives and they usually end with ly in in english and this but there's no way to do that in english with this word because we don't have that adverb but in uh it would be like saying manifoldly but as far as i know there is no word manifoldly um, but the greek adjective is polymeris okay poly like we have everywhere in english polygons and everything else means many and meris means a measure so many measured in other words in a many measured way usually we say it like this manifold okay because that's what the word manifold means how many of you know on an automobile what an intake manifold is raise your hand okay so every guy in here raise their hand some of the girls raise their hand so the intake manifold on an automobile and don't correct me if i'm too overly simplified here men okay but it receives air right and the air comes through one channel and then it delegates or it sends that air to each one of the cylinders of the vehicle. So if you have a four cylinder vehicle with most of them, you're going to just see that thing right on top. And these days, usually it's plastic. OK, and it's just right there on top. And it's going to be one thing coming in and four fingers going out. That's a manifold. And it's not a bad example at all of what's being spoken of here. That God has, notice what it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways. So it's talking about in the Old Testament times, that God is speaking to the fathers. Remember, this is being written to Jews. And the writer is saying to these Jews, God was speaking, the writer being Jewish also, to our fathers. And he spoke to our fathers through the prophets. We have Isaiah, we have Jeremiah, we have Ezekiel, we have Hosea, we have Joel, we have many, many prophets. We have ancient prophets like Job, we have ancient prophets like Moses, and God is speaking through these prophets to the people, okay, to the fathers, right? But he's doing it, this is how he does it. He does it in manifold ways. He does it in many portions. And this represents to us a progressive revelation. So if you are cylinder number one, let's say that your name is Job. That's a very ancient book. Very, perhaps, most likely the most ancient story in the Old Testament. Okay, not that it's 
before Genesis chapter 1, but that it was written uh, before Moses wrote. And if you are Job, you hear something from God. And as far as you know, you're the only cylinder in this entire car because you can't see across to the other cylinders. You don't know what else is in the car. You're getting your jet of air and you're getting your fire of the Holy Spirit. Air and fire are very good examples, by the way. And you're having your little explosion, your little revelation. And as far as you know, that's all there is. And let's say that you're a cylinder number two, three, say you're number four, you're Ezekiel. Same thing. Maybe you know some other stuff that came before you, but you don't even really know that there's eight cylinders in this car. You understand what I'm saying? It's coming in manifold portions. It's coming in manifold ways. It's coming progressively. And that's really important to us as we study the word of God. It's important to us in our lives. Because we absolutely will never understand the New Testament the way God wants us to understand the New Testament and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ if we don't listen to the prophets of the Old Testament. And you can't just cherry pick one little verse out of the Bible and ignore the rest of the Bible and expect to be able to understand what God is speaking. Because he has one word. Remember, there's only one uh, jet of air, one stream of air coming in right but it has to be directed in order to all of the different cylinders and they have to fire in a certain order and if you're the cylinder yourself you have no idea what else is happening you don't care is this happening to you but god is orchestrating you know modern cars it's a computer doing all that god is orchestrating this so that everything works in harmony so that everything moves according to his time and according to his purpose but the word is only one word but it's consisting of many parts it's manifold and so you cannot understand the whole unless you understand the parts of the whole. I could think of several mathematical examples that would work for this too, but I think you understand. So this word polymeris is only used one time in the New Testament. That's translated here as in many portions. It's used right here. And then it's used one time, not in the Old Testament as we have the Old Testament, but in the Apocrypha. And in that body of Jewish literature in the Apocrypha that was very well known uh, in the first century. It's used in a book that's called The Wisdom of Solomon. It wasn't written by Solomon. It was written later. It was written in Greek, but that doesn't matter right now. Uh, it's used in a book called The Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 22 of Wisdom of Solomon. But I want to read to you just the very first part of that because it's really pretty cool. And it says, Wisdom is the artisan of all things or the maker of all things. There is in her a spirit that is intelligent, holy, unique, manifold. And that's the same word. And the reason I wanted to read that to you is because wisdom and their understanding, this is the word of God, God's wisdom, okay? His word is the maker of all things. But his word is unique, it says, first of all. In the Greek, this word unique, that's there in Wisdom of Solomon 7.22, is the word monogenes, only begotten. It's the same word that's used of the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. And it means there's nothing else like this person. There's nothing else like this word. This word is supreme. It is over and above every word that could ever be spoken. And yet, though it is unique, it's also manifold. You hear his word in many different ways and receive his word in many different ways. 
And this is true today also in our lives. And yet, that's really not what's being said here. This really isn't a message right now to us yet in verse 1. This is telling us about how things used to be before Jesus came. Okay? It's still true that we receive his word in many different ways in our lives. But every way that we receive his word in our lives comes through one only begotten son of God, through Jesus Christ. And if it doesn't, then it's not God's word because God's word comes through him. But we'll get to that in verse 2. So the first word is in many portions. And then immediately following that, it says, and in many ways. And again, this is a single adverb that's used in the Greek. And this adverb is the adverbial form of the adjective polytropos, which again, poly, poly means many. And tropos means turnings or paths that you turn into. So turning in many different directions. And this understanding needs to be not of somebody who's lost or who's confused, but like in basketball, how you pivot on one foot and you can turn in all directions, but your pivot always stays in the exact same place. Uh, like our, my, my head anyway, can't do a 360, but I can do a 180 pretty good. So maybe a little bit stiff there, but we can turn in many different ways, but we're turning on an axle. We're turning on a point that's unmovable and unchangeable. And that's the picture that we have here of God, that he's bringing forth his word in many portions, and he's bringing forth, he was bringing forth his, way, his word in many ways. Uh, it was very versatile. And that's how he spoke in the Old Testament. So we see here, uh, the substance of his word, and we see here the delivery of his word, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. So what we have in the word order, again, is in many portions and in many ways. And then next in the word order, we read long ago God, long ago God. And the words here long ago are important. We'll talk about them in just a minute. And again, where it says God, it's referring to the Father God. Having spoken to the fathers in the prophets. And that's what we read in the original word order, if you were to read this uh, in the Greek. One of the big things that we're going to see in the book of Hebrews is that God's word spoken to the fathers in the prophets is ultimately, and it already begins with verse 2, is shown to be the father's word, which is spoken to his son. Okay? Yes, God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. We won't get through all four of these verses, but before we do, you're going to realize if you don't know it already, that the person Moses heard at the burning bush who said, I am who I am, this Yahweh God is Jesus Christ. In John, it says that no man has seen the Father at any time. So if anybody ever saw God, they saw Jesus Christ. Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you don't recognize me? When they asked him, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied with that. And he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So the book of Hebrews is going through a series of arguments to establish very strongly for us that Jesus Christ is the best, that there's nothing better, and that the word of God is spoken from the Father to his Son 
who comes into our world to bring salvation to us, and then it's delivered unto us. So I'm going to give you a few scriptures here, and uh, well, uh, let's, let's just read them. We've got plenty of time. We've got years to finish this. In John chapter 9, uh, verse 29, in John chapter 9, verse 29, we read that the religious leaders uh, were speaking to Jesus, and they are about Jesus, I'm sorry. And they say concerning Jesus to the man who was born blind that was healed in John chapter 9. They say these words, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from, speaking about Jesus. So one of the big arguments in the book of Hebrews is going to be to prove to us that Jesus is better than Moses. Not that Moses is bad. None of these angels aren't bad. Moses isn't bad. It wouldn't mean anything to be better than somebody that was bad. <laughs> Moses is the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. But it's going to be shown to us that Jesus is greater than Moses. Because the Jews are ready to listen to Moses, but they're not ready to listen to Jesus. And <clears throat> so throughout the book of Hebrews, and you have some places there in your notes that we're going to get to later. Chapter 2, verse 2, chapter 3, verse 5, 4, 7, 8 and on and on. We're going to see this idea repeated that God's word is spoken to his son and then brought to us. But we're going to get to that now in verse 2. So before we move on to verse 2, I want to bring out three points because we need to compare them to what we read in verse 2 of this. First of all, verse 1 tells us the period of time in which God was speaking, right? It says long ago. So it's talking about in times past and for the jews who lived in the first century this long ago had really truly been long ago because the last time before john the baptist that any prophet had spoken to them from god had been 400 years they had gone 400 years without a prophet speaking god's word to them and then came John the Baptist. So when it says long ago, it really means long ago. That's the period of time. And then the substance of God's word, what God is speaking, his substance is described as in many portions. He's speaking something that comes progressively, a little bit at a time, as it says in the Old Testament, line upon line and precept upon precept. And the way that it's delivered is in many ways, in many ways, that every prophet has his own separate experience. And we could stop right there and say, what, that's just a great message for us today. But it's not, because verse 2 is the message for us today. Verse 2 says, but in these last days, so you see the period of time changes. In verse 1, it's talking about what was a long time ago, once upon a time. This is how God spoke to our fathers. Notice it doesn't say, this is how God spoke to us. This is how God spoke to our fathers once upon a time. But in, in these last days, God has spoken to us. This is how God has spoken to us. And so we read, if we take it uh, a verse, a, a little section at a time in the order that it is in the Greek, the first phrase we read is this, in these last days, God has spoken to us in 
son, in son. In my particular Bible, it says, has spoken to us in his son. I don't know if it says that in your Bible or not. But in the original Greek, it does not say his son. That's just added so we can understand it better. No big deal, except I want to make a big deal of it because it's really important here. And you won't know everything about this until next week because we won't finish all four verses today. But it simply says, in these last days, has spoken to us in son. Okay? That doesn't sound right in English. But the word son here in Greek... There is an article, like how we have the, right? And it's a definite article, the. And there is no indefinite article, a. We have a, or a, and we have the. But there is no indefinite article in Greek. There's only a definite article. And without getting into all kinds of deep discussions about that, there are ways to express the idea of indefinite article like we have in English. Do you know that in Russian there's no definite article or indefinite article? There's no articles at all, and you never use the word is. And it's really weird when you're first learning Russian to get used to that. <laughs> but, it, but, that but, then, but then once you know the language, you know how that's expressed and you can express it anyway. But because English is our native language, we don't even really think of when we use the and a. But if you've ever heard anyone for whom English is not their native language, no matter how many years they live and they speak English and how well they speak English, they're going to make mistakes with the and a. Because it's just something you know from the time you're a baby, okay? So when this is written without the definite article, Whereas almost always when we see son is going to have the definite article, the son, then that should tell us something, and it does tell us something here. In relationship to the divine names, and this is a long subject, but I'm going to give it to you extremely short. The, denying, the divine names. We see something very interesting. I haven't lost you, have I? Okay, just listen. Get your thinking caps on. We see something really interesting. Everybody knows what an article is, right? We're not that far away from English class, are we? The. <laughs> um, we see something very interesting in uh, the scripture. When a divine name is used without an article, it, the, the simplest way I can say it is it gives us the idea of a name. When the divine name is used with an article, it gives us the idea of a title, Okay. And let me give you an example. This, this is going to be real interesting when I get to the end of this. So just follow me. Uh, the name Jesus. Do you know that in the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called synoptic because they basically relay the same stories. Okay. In the synoptic gospels and in the book of Acts, when you read Jesus in English, 93% of the times you read Jesus in the Greek, it says the Jesus, the Jesus, the Jesus. And that's not because in Greek you add a the before everybody's name. Okay? But when you read the name Jesus in the Gospel of John, it almost never uses the. It's a very, very small percentage. John exclusively talks about Jesus without an article. And when you read Jesus, the name Jesus, in the writings of Paul, 
He absolutely never uses the Jesus. He always just writes Jesus. Well, what's the big deal here? Well, it's actually a beautiful picture because the synoptic gospels are presenting Jesus as the Messiah. It's a title. You know, the name Jesus is Yeshua, that Yahweh saves, or some people would say Jehovah, but Yahweh saves us. And it's a title. And if you were reading that, and you know that was your native language you would pick up on that they keep calling him the Jesus the Jesus the Jesus this is the person who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah but when we come to John we see Jesus presented in a different completely different way and John's written much much later at the end of the first century and the gospel of John is, 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 is this gospel of truth and this gospel of love. And the stories that are in John, they're not even in the synoptic gospels. They're very private stories. And in fact, they're all designed to present this picture of a personal Jesus that we know by name. Okay? And so he comes out more as a name Jesus in John, having already established in the New Testament his title. And Paul... Well, Paul already asked him his name. Do you remember that? He's on the road to Damascus. His name is Saul. And, he said, and, and this person says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? What's your name, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And from that day forward, he never called him anything but Jesus. It's his personal name. But there's an importance to understanding that, and I'll give it to you in just a minute. But let me talk about Lord then also. Um, the name Lord or the title Lord. See, when we hear Jesus, we think more of a name and not a title. When we hear Lord, we think more of a title and not a name. So Lord, if you have a New American Standard Version or King James Version, most versions, and you're reading through the Old Testament... And you see that the word Lord, and it's written like, I just opened one up, Psalm 118.17. It's all over the place. And it's written with all caps. That means that in the Hebrew, that's the word Yahweh, the name of God. Okay? If it's written with not all caps, but just Lord, then it's going to be most often Adonai or some version of Adonai, which means Lord. But Lord is really not the meaning of Yahweh. If I was going to give you the meaning of Yahweh, the best I could do is the one who is. I am who I am. Okay, it's, it's its meaning. I am who I am. But because the Jews never said that name out loud, and some people would argue, well, you shouldn't say it out loud today. And I argue, no, I should say it out loud because I know Jesus personally today. But because they never said that name out loud, that's why you get versions like Jehovah, Yahweh, different, because nobody really knows 100% how it was supposed to be pronounced, to be honest. It's just four consonants, Y equivalent to YHVH or YHWH. And so in the Old Testament, in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where we see this word Lord, which you know is hundreds upon hundreds, it's thousands of times. We see this word Lord. It's never used with an article, not one time, because it is the name of God. However, when you come to the New Testament, 99% of the time that we see Lord in the New Testament, 
with this caveat, except when it's a direct quotation of the Old Testament where it didn't have the article, 99% of the time it has the article because now this kurios, as it said in Greek, has become the title of, of Jesus. A name becomes a title. A title becomes a name. Hold on to that thought. I'm going to tell you why this is important in just a minute. Christ, Christos, Christ, in the Gospels is almost everywhere written with an article, the Christ, meaning the Messiah. But in the epistles, it's almost everywhere written without an article. And for us, Christ is pretty easy to understand, and even Lord, because we understand Christ as a name of Jesus. In fact, I would dare say that most of the times when we say Jesus Christ, we're not even thinking that Christ means Messiah and he's a fulfillment. It's almost just becomes this name we call him. We're not even thinking that that means the anointed one. But if you lived in the first century, you'd be thinking that all the time because that's what it means. And so he's called as a title in the Gospels and then a name in the epistles without the article. So why is this important? What does this have to do with Hebrews other than just being interesting? Well, here's what it has to do with Hebrews. Here's what's included so powerfully in this name, Son. And then it's repeated over and over again in the book of Hebrews. Number one, that he is the God of the Old Testament. He is one with the Father. He is equal with the Father God. No prophet was equal with the Father God. No prophet is the God of the Old Testament. No prophet of any religion. And with all due respect to religious people and good people of other religions, Muhammad himself and no Islam today would say that Muhammad is equal to God. In fact, that would be blasphemy to them. No one would say that Buddha is equal to God. But the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us to understand and to know and to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And nothing less than that can be called the gospel. He is the divine Son of God. So if you're talking about me, I have, just for an example, I, I may have a title pastor, and my name is Kevin. But those things really are not interchangeable for me. As much as I love being a pastor, I know that being a pastor is part of my life. Yes, it's a calling. It's maybe not the same thing as being a doctor or a lawyer. I don't know. But in a sense, it is because everybody has a calling in their life. But it's what I do, right? And perhaps someday I'll retire and I won't be a pastor anymore. But if you're a pastor, you'll always call yourself pastor anyway. And you don't really retire. But you kind of get what I mean, okay? That you're not going to be doing that same job anymore, right? But you don't stop being you. But when you're in those years of your life where you're very busy working, you can easily forget who you really are. Do you know what I'm talking about? Because your whole life is just about work. For many women who are mothers, for many, many years of their lives, they can easily forget who they are as a woman because their whole life is just answering the needs of these needy kids and that needy husband. I know well about this. It's a lot of work to be a mom. It's a lot of work to be a dad, but it's, it really is more work to be a mom, I think. And so you can easily forget who you are. So it's like mom, that's like a title. Dad, that's like a title. But nobody called you mom when you were born because you weren't a mom yet. But they called you by your name. 
It's who you are. So we have this dichotomy, this difference between our title and our name. That's what I'm saying. God does not have that dichotomy. Jesus does not have that dichotomy. Being Lord and being Messiah is not his job. It's who he is. Being Savior, it's not his job, nine to five. It's who he is. It's who he was. It's who he is. It's who he always will be. He's not divided in the way that we are divided. He is the Son of God, and he has a relationship with the Father that exists from all eternity. It's really important for us to know and to understand that he did not become the Son of God when he was born to Mary. He did not become the Son of God when Mary got pregnant with him. He always was the Son of God. He is the Son of God, and he always will be the Son of God. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this trinity of love and communication exists from all eternity, and it doesn't matter if we understand that. In fact, if we could grasp it with our minds and understand it completely, I would think something's terribly wrong with God because he's God. <laughs> and we don't understand this completely, and we can't grasp it completely. But it's what we believe, and it's what the Word of God says, and it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's what we need. Because if there is no love and no communication that has existed for all the eternity, then we're doomed. Because we know how far our love and communication can go and how easily we can fail and how we can be tested and how much we need Jesus Christ in our lives. So it says in these last days, he has spoken to us in son. And then notice what it says after that. And this will go through quicker. It says, whom he appointed. Who appointed whom? The father appointed the son, right? The father appointed the son. The Greek word appointed means literally set him in place, positioned him. It's a position of authority and a position of anointing and a position of power. It's when you appoint somebody, you do it in a way that's public, right? If somebody's appointed, it's not a private appointment that everybody finds out about 10 years later. You want to make sure that everybody who's affected by this knows this. And so very publicly, before all of the world, God the Father appointed his son. And what did he appoint him to be? He appointed him whom he appointed heir of all things. Now here's a Greek word for you, all things. In Greek, it means all things. It's very deep, isn't it? But it means absolutely everything okay it's not some things it's not good things as opposed to bad things he is the heir of all things and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess not that long ago i heard a certain person i won't say who it is doesn't matter a certain person talking about the kingdom of god and he was talking about how Jesus is the king of the Jews, but he's not the king of the church. I was like, what? And it's this thing that got me really confused when I was listening to it because I never even heard anything like that. It's no way in our church, don't worry. And, and I kind of understood what he was trying to say, but he was making it so complicated. And I just said, well, how can you say he's not the king of the church? Well, it never says king of the church in the New Testament. 
I said, but it says he's our Lord. Yeah, but Lord and King are different. I said, no, they're not different. <laughs> if somebody's your Lord, he's your King. Okay, that he is the heir of all things. So this word heir, I'm not going to talk about the Greek word tonight, but we're going to have to get to it eventually because it's very important in the book of Hebrews. But you know what an heir is, right? Somebody who inherits all things. And it's very important for us to understand that Jesus is this heir of all things because it gives us an understanding of who we are in Christ. And then it says, through whom also he made the world. Through whom also he made the world. So give me just a couple of minutes and we're going to finish verse 2 here. How many of you have a version in English where it says something besides world there? Does anybody? Universe. Universe. What does yours say? Universe. World. Mine says world. Worlds. That's good. That's pretty good. Universe, that's not bad. But let me tell you what it says in the Greek. In the Greek, it says, whom he made. Uh, I'm sorry, I turned my page over. In the Greek, it says, through whom also he made the ages. This is the Greek word ages. Why it's translated world, worlds, universe, etc. Honestly, I don't know. And I can't remember what it says in the King James. Maybe it says ages. I don't know if anybody has that or not. But it says ages, okay? And this is, this is pretty important. The word world in the Greek is cosmos, cosmos, and, uh, which in Russian means outer, outer space. And, um, but it's where we get the word cosmetics from. Did you know that, ladies? Cosmetics come from this word. And cos, uh, cosmopolitan comes from this word. And cosmetology comes from this word. Because cosmos means the order of things. And it's what the Greeks called the world. So, you know, when you put on your cosmetics, you're ordering your face, I guess. I don't know why it's called that. But it, it has to, honestly, the word has to do with beauty and order. Okay? Beauty and order. And that word is just used hundreds of times in the New Testament. And it's always translated as, as world. Okay? It's just stereotypically translated as world. But almost nowhere is the word ages going to be translated as world, but it's translated here. And that's probably kind of a translation mistake there. But it just seemed like it would be hard to understand if you said ages. Uh, so let's say universe, let's say world. But this is, this is an important point, okay? Um, we, have, we live in our universe. We live in this world. And we have a relative point of view. We're moving through space and time. And our point of view is relative to this world. You know, like uh, if you've ever heard somebody arguing that, the, you know, the, the earth is flat. There's still flat earthers out there, right? Well, honestly, let's say the earth is not flat. Let's say that it looks like that globe I have in my office, which even the scientists will tell you it doesn't look exactly like that, right? But honestly, I can't really prove that on my own because I have no point of view to be able to look at the entire globe of the planet, right? And then, honestly, many things that are not flat, they seem flat if you get far enough away. And what really does flat mean? Because even a flat piece of paper has some dimension to it, right? And without trying to get too complicated here, what I'm trying to say is that your point of view has to do with everything. So from God's point of view, he sees things from eternity, okay? But we see things in the time that we are locked in. 
And so when we look at the world, we see ages. We see different ages. We see different worlds. In uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 6, 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 6, Peter is writing about Noah, the time of Noah. And he says there in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 6 that the world that Noah was born in is not the same world that he came out of the ark into. That there was a world that existed before the flood and it does not exist anymore. And there is a world that will exist in the coming of Jesus Christ. However your eschatology works out, everything you see today is going to be burned up with fire and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. So he says there's a world that existed before the flood. And you know there's a world that existed before the fall of Adam. It's a completely different world. And the planet's the same, if you're talking about the physical matter. The planet was the same planet that he went into the ark on, that he came out of the ark on. But the world itself was different. We can even understand that nature changed. Because apparently, when we read Genesis, rain didn't used to fall on the earth the way that it felt has been falling on the earth since after the flood. We can look around at nature around us and we can see that something cataclysmic changed the world that we live in. The flood of Noah changed everything. But even more than that, human government changed completely. All the people were dead except for uh, Noah and his family. God made a fresh start. God started all over. So there are many different ages. And in Hebrews, what's being said there is that through Jesus Christ, all of these ages... However many there are, I've mentioned just before the fall, before the flood, and after this age when Jesus comes back. But however many ages there are in God's economy, I don't know. However many universes there are, however great this thing is that God has created, you can know this, that everything that exists was created by God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. And he, God the Father, who created everything that exists, whatever your fantasy could come up with, whatever you could dream of, whatever might be out there somewhere, everything has been created by a God who talks to you personally through his son, Jesus Christ. You're on the best team. You've got the best so why would you ever want to compromise Jesus for anything in this world? Well, I don't want to lose my job. Wouldn't it be better to lose your job but have Jesus? Wouldn't it be better to go to prison but have Jesus? Wouldn't it be better to be stoned to death, to be crucified, to lose everything, for everybody to hate you, but you're on Jesus' side and Jesus loves you because he is the best. And if he is the inheritor or the heir of all things, then if you have Jesus, you have everything. Thing. What do you think it means when Jesus says, Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, and all these things will be added unto you? What do you think it means when he says, Why do you worry about tomorrow? You can't even count the hairs on your head. God knows it all. And before you even ask about it, he's got it covered. He knows what you have need of. You don't have to worry about anything because God has spoken to you. And the message of Hebrews is just to plead with these people as it pleads with us today. Please do not 
compromise this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says he has been appointed heir of all things. And through him, God the Father has made all of the ages. Now notice the period of time. If the period of time in verse 1 was a long time ago, once upon a time, the period of time in verse 2 is in these last days. Acts 2.17. It tells us that Peter said that in these last days, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all flesh. We live in these last days. And the substance if in verse 1 it was manifold, it came in many portions. In verse 2, it is single. It's not manifold anymore. It says, has spoken. It's a completed act. He's not speaking anything new. Okay? Every single verse of the New Testament is filled with the same revelation of Jesus Christ. And yes, Jesus is in every verse of the Old Testament. But he's coming manifold. He's coming in portions. He's coming in different ways. And the Jesus you can see in Malachi is not the same Jesus that you see in Genesis. Yes, it's the same Jesus. But you see that because you're looking with hindsight. Those prophets didn't understand what they were prophesying. Only a little bit. Only a little bit. But he has spoken to us, it says. It is a completed revelation. And then it says that it does not come in many different ways anymore, but it comes in the Son. It comes through his Son. It is a complete revelation. Wouldn't it be something if it said that it comes through Moses, a man who's a prophet, a great prophet, but failed nonetheless? Wouldn't it be something if it said it came... The final revelation came through Muhammad, a man, just a man, who for many people is the greatest of prophets, probably more of them on the earth today than Christians, I don't know, but nonetheless just a man. Or if it came through Buddha, or it came from Confucius, or it came from whoever you want to come up with. We've all got these heroes and these leaders and all this stuff, but all of it is just a pile of junk compared to Jesus. It didn't come through some just a man. It came through the man, Christ Jesus, who is the eternal Son of God. You remember the parable where Jesus talked about that um, the master of the vineyard sent these servants and the evil people there, the lazy, wicked slaves there, they beat all the servants up and sent them back. So he sent some more and they beat them up and sent them back. So he said, finally, I'm going to send my son. And when they see my son, they're going to know I mean business. So when the son comes, they kill him, right, in the parable. But when someone sends their son, you better know that they mean business. And he sent his only begotten son. He has appointed him as heir of all things, all power or all authority, literally. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and preach the gospel. We're going to get to the gospel in verse 3. That's going to be next week. We're going to get to the name of Jesus that he's inherited in verse 4. That's going to be next week also. We'll do verse 3 and 4 next week. But he has all authority. He has inherited all things. And this is a major theme of Hebrews. It's a major theme of Hebrews that that inheritance was not lost to him in the... Um, uh, incarnation when he became a man 
that that inheritance was not lost to him at the cross and that we share in that inheritance. And I'm going to pick up with this next week because I want to read a few verses on even more time than I've got right now. But we share in that inheritance. We have that together with him. But what I just want to say in, in closing today is this. No, I'm going to leave that for next week because I've got to read those verses to get it out to you. You'll get it next week. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word tonight. I thank you. Give me understanding when to start and when to stop, Lord, so that we don't get too much, but we don't get too little. Lord, I just thank you that you have spoken to us in Son, <laughs> in Jesus, and that we are in Jesus. And if any man be in Christ, then he is a new creation, and all the old things have passed away. And behold, I love that word behold there. Wow. Look at this. Behold, all things have become new. I thank you, Lord, that today the revelation that you've given to us in Jesus Christ is greater than any revelation, is greater than any word that can be spoken. It's greater than the trials, the tribulations. It's greater than the turmoil that our world and our nation in particular are going through today, that your name is greater. You taught us to pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven and that your kingdom would come. And Lord, we ask you that today. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself afresh to us in these days with a revelation of such strength and such potency that would be like the oil that the five wise virgins gathered before they fell asleep. That before the persecution comes, before the fire gets too hot, that we would know that you are God and that you love us and that we are in you, Jesus, and that you have the complete victory. You are the heir of all things. That we would be able to stand whatever we may face in this life, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and say, if our God wants to save us out of the fire, he can. If he doesn't want to, we're ready to die anyway. But what we're not going to do is bow down our knee to some two-bit, cheapo, fake God when we've got the real thing. Because what we have is better than that God you made, Nebuchadnezzar. And we will not bow to that thing you made. Lord, put that in our hearts, that what we have is better. Who we have is better. We give you praise and glory this evening. We in hope Jesus you enjoyed the message. Amen. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urringtonbillionfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.